Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. Fermentation has always existed in my brain as a textbook definition from biology class, discussing how microbes, or sometimes we, can get energy from sugar in the absence of oxygen, right? Remember answering those multiple choice questions on an exam at some point in your life? Ugh. But what about how that process applies to food? Our kimchi, our misos, pickles, bread, cheese, yogurt, beer. After listening to this conversation with David Zilber, I think you'll have a much deeper appreciation for fermentation, the microbes that transform our food for us, and how this process and practice has the potential to help fix an unsustainable food industry. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I have David Zilber here with me today. He's a food scientist, a very innovative fermenter, a best-selling author, chef and former head of the fermentation lab at Noma, judge on Top Chef Canada, current head of fermented food research and development at Christian Hansen, which is a bioscience company, and most importantly, he is a fellow admirer of Lynn Margulis, who is my favorite scientist. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Julia. Of course. So today, I really want to talk to you about the process of fermentation and the microorganisms involved. And before we get deeper into this, could you just explain what fermentation is? I suppose the simplest answer to that question, uh, if we're just kind of hovering on the surface right now, I like to say that fermentation is the transformation of one ingredient, one foodstuff, into another with the help of a microbe. That was great. That was very concise. I find it amazing that you're able to use, you know, natural metabolic processes to transform these foods. And I think it's just like a really cool example of how humans and microbes are connected. And so what kinds of organisms ferment food and what are some fermented food products listeners may be familiar with or not familiar with? I'd say there's lots of organisms that ferment food. Like I said, I, I think fermentation should be restricted in its definition to microorganisms. Mm-hmm. You know, you go back to the etymology of the word. It comes from Latin, ferbere, which meant to boil. Okay. But obviously, you know, the ancient Latins, ancient Greeks, ancient Romans knew that there was a difference in between putting a pot of water on the stove or putting a, a boiling stone into a cauldron to heat up the water, something that had been heated over fire versus this natural act of letting something alone in the corner and over the course of days, if not weeks, watching these different gases bubble to the surface. So there were many mythological differentiations between, you know, the act of cooking and the act of fermentation. But what was always missing was, you know, the agent. And, And that's why there are so many myths attached to fermentation. 
you know, you go to West Africa and there's gods and deities of palm wine. You go to ancient Roman Greece, you have Dionysus and Bacchus. Ancient Native Americans have their own myths about, you know, cocoa trees and the fermentation of, of all these amazing substances in Mesoamerica. But of course, what was missing was the microbes. And that's why there was kind of this relegation onto the unseen and, and the mystical. It was relegated to theology in that respect. So microbes have to be essential. I mean, look at it this way. A cow ferments a field. A cow mm -hmm. <laughs> turns a whole prairie into cow meat. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That is an act of transformation. Yeah. Not that humans can eat grass, but cows are really good at turning an inedible source of biomass, grass, into an edible source, which is a cow mm -hmm. and dairy and its meat and, and all of it. But you also have to think that inside the cow, still unseen, are trillions of methanogenic anaerobic microbes that have the capacity to break down cellulose and build basically essential amino acids that the cow could not forge on its own without the help of these microorganisms. Now I'm getting into symbiosis. <laughs> Forgive me for going on a tangent here. No, 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 but that good. is such a deeply entrenched form of symbiosis mm -hmm. that cows have an entire stomach that has evolved just to host these microbes. Humans don't have, you know, a casing. Humans don't have a stomach dedicated to, you know, these invitable creatures, even though they live with us anyway. And we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But we did invent the fermentation croc. We did use our big brains to figure out how to craft environments to host these microorganisms, even before we were aware of them. Not that the cow is aware of their microorganisms, but neither were we. But we understood that the process was also an essential way to turn what was oftentimes inedible biomass into life-sustaining, nourishing biomass. But again, it always comes down to microbes. So those are yeasts, those are bacteria, and those are filamentous fungi for the most part. I am not aware of any archaea that are involved in fermentation. <laughs> but I know within that swath, I mean, within just yeast and bacteria, that's a, really a lot of the natural world. That, that's a huge kind of swath of, of life uh, on its own. You throw a filamentous fungi into the mix, and of course, that, that grows even more. And I guess, well, it, it's morning where you are. So if you want me to give some examples, I'll grill you right back. What did you have for breakfast, Julia? I <laughs> embarrassingly rolled out of bed, and before this interview, I had a piece of toast. A piece of toast. Okay. <laughs> did you butter it? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, there you go. It was actually a perfect. It, it was olive bread that my roommate made, so it was amazing. Yeah. This is only getting better. Okay. So even if you'd said that you were like reliving your undergrad life and you just took a piece of bread out of a bag and stuffed it in your mouth before you got to your appointment, even if you said that, I'd say, well, great. You're running off of fermented foods right now. You're not running off of fumes. You're running off of mm -hmm. the action of yeast, probably. It, it was good bread. Apparently. Yeah, it so was. It was. Hopefully, delicious. it was. Hopefully, it was like wild, inoculated sourdough starter from the air and the environment. You know, I think it might have been because he was one of these people who got very into baking bread during this pandemic. And okay, three years later, this was a beautiful loaf of bread. Amazing, amazing. That alone is great. Even if it was like industrially produced Wonder Bread. Mm -hmm. You still would have been consuming, you know, the dead cells of mm -hmm. billions. Of yeast, you know, industrially produced kind of like, you know, the, the industrial chicken of yeast, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, 
you'd have been consuming a fermented food to sustain yourself. Even better that you're eating this amazing, delicious olive sourdough, but the fact that it has olives in it, great. Those olives were fermented. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is a long process of leaching and specific lactic acid bacteria that are thrown into the vats with olives to, to help break down the tannins and acidify and transform inedible, very bitter, very tannic olives into something that people love eating around a dinner table or throwing into their bread. And if you buttered it, I'm just going to assume that you just have a great farmer's market nearby and you were eating cultured butter as well, which of course is, you know, souring your cream before or you churn it, again, with the help of, you know, swarms of lactobacillials that are extremely good at breaking down lactose and making all sorts of delicious flavors and, and, and complex molecules. So in your very simple, sort of ashamed breakfast, yeah. you still manage to incorporate three domains of fermentation. And that's the point. It is such an incredibly ubiquitous human activity. And, you know, I, I have to kind of temper that it's not just a human activity it's an interspecies activity it is this kind of (sighs) organismic braid of activity uh between not just humans and microbes but also the organisms that we're both eating in this act and our domesticates and our cultural practices it's everywhere there's just a i'll I'll wrap up this (laughs) introduction question i've been blabbering on for a bit now but There was a quote from the the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery from, I believe, 2010 or 2012. And it's this one little tidbit that I absolutely adore. It's that, you know, some anthropologists and food scientists call fermentation the hidden third. It's estimated that one out of every three calories, one out of every three bites of food that people consume on Earth are touched in some way, shape, or form explicitly by microbes. And I mean, even if you don't need anything else fermented today, one out of your three meals will have been fermented. And that kind of goes to prove the point. That is a really good point. An extension of that, since we're eating so much fermented food, and I know that I think people are getting a lot more into fermented foods right now. You would know better than I would, but there's obviously some benefits to eating it, right? Are there health benefits? Like, what, what, why, why should we be eating fermented foods? Like, why is it important? Are there health benefits to eating fermented foods? <laughs> I know that there are. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, we'll just look at. A statement I just made that fermentation is often involved in the transformation of an inedible food source into an edible one. Here around Christian Hansen, I hear some of the microbiologists sometimes joke that bacteria are just bags of enzymes. But I mean, evolution is a clever beast. And there was a quote in a book I just read, something along the lines of any like protein-based transformation that is inefficient, given enough time, Nature will invent an enzyme to make it efficient. And bacteria are, I can't remember what scientist said that, but I love it. Bacteria are just the world's kind of like database of Mm -hmm. all of the best enzymes out there. Anything that exists in elephants or us or trees or whales probably also exists in bacteria in in some analogous form. Well, we we wouldn't exist if it weren't for a cell eating a bacterium and taken off off from there. So it's all all of our cells, all of our mitochondria were once bacteria. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Summing this up, a lot of the things that we can't eat that would just pass through us or cause us lots of indigestion, bacteria can break down for us given enough time. Complex starches, toxic chemicals. And sure, even though there's lots of bacteria that can produce toxic chemicals, there's lots of bacteria that can also break them down. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the bacteria and, and yeast and fungi that we've cozied up to and use consistently and regard as safe and domesticated species, or at least species that we're familiar with through the cultural practices of fermentation, are really good at, like I said, either breaking down tougher, indigestible plant or animal matter, or even improving the nutritional profile of things that would kind of be like neither here nor there for us. So there's a great example um, that was highlighted in this amazing book, The Book of Miso by Will Shirtliff that was written in the 1970s. And it's this, it's like a Bible for fermenters, his early work. And it was one of the first places that I read about kind of like the, the nutritional index of fermented foods. You take something as simple as a miso. You take soybeans, which have lots of anti-nutrients in them. They have lots of, of, lots of things that bind to chemicals that your body should be uptaking and prevented from being absorbed in your small intestine, things like that. And you take rice, which can be kind of nutritionally kind of vacant, you know, just kind of empty calories and starch. You let a specific fungus grow through an Aspergillus psoriasis. You turn that rice into koji, and then you mix that rice with your soybean. Add salt to keep out bad bacteria as a control measure, keep out oxygen with weights, and give it time. And the enzymes from that fungus completely transform the mixture and make the equivalent amount of miso more nutritious for your body in like double-digit percentages than the same amount of cooked soybeans and cooked rice alone. You get more vitamins, more calories, more nutrients in every way, shape, and form from the fermented product than you would from its base ingredient. So that's just one example of of the ways that fermentation makes food healthier for you. But there's countless others. You know, there's, there's all this talk about the human microbiome. You know, terms like probiotic and prebiotic have now kind of entered the mainstream public consciousness. Mm -hmm. But there's also the idea of postbiotics. And that's not about your internal microbiome. That's about your external microbiome. Like what's going on in your fermentation crock on the counter? When microbes live through a batch of sauerkraut, they're producing vitamins in situ. I mean, that was kind of like the whole reason sauerkraut really took off in the modern world in the first place. It was used as as like a storable, non-perishable way of having vitamin C on the high seas. Like English and and Dutch sailors would suffer scurvy when they were out at sea for too long. Their captains could either try to stow away tropical citrus fruits that would eventually go bad when you're on a month-long voyage, or you could take sauerkraut with you, which was shelf-stable, not going to go anywhere, you know, prevented from being spoiled by all the lactic acid that was inside. But the bacteria that lived through them managed to create in situ all the vitamin C that these sailors needed to stay healthy. And, and there's countless examples of that. In my own work, I found ways to produce vitamin B12 in completely vegan foods through the addition of certain bacteria, which is like an essential nutrient that's often lacking from non-animal protein diets. Mm-hmm. You know, you see it with the, the decrease of glycemic indexes in some foods. There's a whole panoply of reasons why eating ferments is healthy for you. Not in the least the fact that these microbes, as much as they live in our food, they also live inside us too. And and just consuming them on a regular basis kind of keeps the standing army of your hollow biont in good shape and form and kind of well-maintained. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see because I know human microbiome research, especially gut microbiome research is a very hot topic right now. But I think collectively as scientists, we really don't understand much about it. I think it's been broken down so far as like you add this one thing in and things get a little better. You take this one thing out and things get a little worse. But it'll be interesting as that research develops more and your 
food-based research develops more and to see what answers we get from both of those fields coming together. Um, So I read that the company you work for, Christian Hansen, has, I don't know if this is the correct number, but I read that they have 40,000 microbial strains available for use in foods, which is crazy. Like, I think that number is higher than most culture collections that I'm aware of or that I interact with at my job. So. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like peeking in your Zoom, but what what does that look like? Because as a scientist, I'm very biased. I'm just picturing a typical lab with incubators and Petri dishes. You know, what do the microbes look like where you work? Where are you getting them? What are you doing with them? Okay. Well, first of all, that's correct. Okay. The Christian Hansen Culture Collection, what's called the CHCC, is one of the largest collections of classified for use microbes in the world. It is a bunch of people's full-time job to quote unquote search for new blood. Okay. There are a lot of joint contracts with universities and institutions from universities in, in Indonesia to mm. the, the Besterdijk Fungal Institute to universities in the States where there is this kind of sharing protocol that does follow the Nagoya protocol. So, Oh, I know um, all about the Nagoya protocol. Yeah, it's an amazing <laughs> Protocol that we have to follow that ensures that, you know, any biological materials, even down to microbes, see their source of origin, not pirated, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so Christian Hansen does pay lots of royalties to kind of obscure corners of the globe for some of the amazing living organisms that they employ and sell on the market for food fermentation. What does the CHCC look like? It looks like insane racks in like a minus 80 walk-in deep freezer. That's what I was picturing. I have only I have only seen photos of it. Okay. I have not been inside it. I think very few people in the company get to go inside of it. Interesting. <laughs> it's not at the headquarters here. It's offsite. And it exists in triplicate. Cool. So there are three of these freezers around the world, two in Denmark and one in France, as redundant backups. Mm-hmm. And anytime, you know, new blood goes into it's funny that it's called new blood. There's no blood in any of these organisms. <laughs> Anytime new blood goes in, uh, it gets kind of sent off and, and categorized and filed away in, in all three separate freezers. Like I said, I don't have access to all these bugs. I'm pretty downstream from that hardcore pure R&D. Okay. I work with things that are ready to eat. If I'm putting a bug into some base ingredients, I'm probably taking something off the shelf that Christian Hansen already sells and finding a new okay. way to make food interesting with it. Okay, that was going to be my next question, so that's good. Well, we can just roll into that, so so so, feel free. Well, I was just going to ask, like, taking something from a Petri dish to something that I'm eating on my plate, I was going to ask a little bit about that process, and it sounds like there's a lot of R&D or research and development that goes into making sure, I guess, these microbes that are doing the fermentation are safe and doing a good job prior to it being put on food that people are eating. So needless to say, yes, you know, going from Petri dish to dinner dish, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of, I don't want to say red tape, but there's a lot of regulatory steps to ensure that these things are safe, reproducible, and and not just safe, like, and don't produce, let's say, toxins, which is, of course, something to look out for, but even biogenic amine, even things that could trigger uh, allergic reactions in a very small percentage of the population are mm-hmm. actively screened here at Christian Hansen. So, you know, I, like I said, I'm working with things that are already in production, that are that have graph certification, you know, that have been produced for a long time. 
But that doesn't mean that my job's boring because one of the most fascinating effects of fermentation is the fact that when you start mixing bugs, you can have completely different effects. So there's a whole department here dedicated to that. It's called combinatorial microbiology. And they deal with just, you know, they have amazing machines that can do hundreds of microtidal plates at a time and, you know, scan for different rates of fermentation or acidification and very, very closely and accurately track how these consortia bacteria are playing with each other. Hmm. Uh, because you never know, you know, something that you might know very well. Like, like imagine the coziest house pet. Imagine like a golden retriever, like the world's best family pet. You know what golden retrievers are. You know what they do. Yeah, they're I mean, big. They're goofy. They love to lick you when they come home and they love to eat. I would argue that the best house pet is a cat, but you can continue. Yeah. Sure. Fair enough. And I get the ears <laughs> in the background. Now imagine that your golden retriever is the second dog you have. Right, yeah. And the first dog you have was a chihuahua. But now that you've introduced the golden retriever into a household with a chihuahua already, there's something going on with its scent glands. There's something going on with, like, the pack dynamics. Mm -hmm. And even though the chihuahua is harmless and the golden retriever was harmless alone, together they're, like, the fiercest guard animals imaginable. Like, fiercer than... A Belgian Malinois, but separately, they're completely different beasts. So that's kind of like a weird analogy for the way that microbes sometimes play together and, and why the job is constantly interesting and really enthralling. Because you really never know what you're going to get when you start compounding different microbes on top of each other in new substrates. And I've seen some amazing results that help to keep out pathogens for weeks on end or produce completely new flavors or, or help to, as I said, you know, produce things like vitamin B12 that need certain precursor molecules to build those things that we're actually looking for in human health. So yeah, there's lots there that goes into it. That's really interesting. In, in our lab, we're involved in some co-culture experiments with algae. And it's the same thing. Like there's certain groups of algae that on their own do one thing, but together the dynamic leads to really fast growth or some sort of new discovery of a very efficient process. And I think that's a big research area right now, I guess, with foods, basic research, like what I'm doing, or, you know, biofuels and a lot of green energy, I think, in mm-hmm. involves the dynamics between different microbes. So taking any sort of microbe out of nature and putting it into a lab or a kitchen or something, you're going to have to replicate some of its living conditions to keep it surviving and thriving. I'm sure it's even harder to do that if you have multiple microbes living together. What are the challenges of that? And then also, do you experiment with their conditions? Like do different temperatures or light, I don't know, like fermentation time, does that affect how things taste? Yeah. I mean, organisms are kind of like the mirror images of the environments that produce them. Mm -hmm. You know, organisms are made literally out of their environments. Yeah. Uh, And they're made to thrive within those environments and do something very specific. So environmental control is like the chief mechanism you have in fermentation to make things go in the direction you want. I like to say steer. I don't ever like to, when I'm talking about fermentation, talk about it as if you were the one deciding how things are going to be. In a very simple way, you could say that you are, but you're not. There's a very kind of crucial coupling in there and that you're not ultimately the one in control of the microbes. All you're doing is setting up environmental conditions. No, I, I like and that. I like that. You gotta respect the microbes. Yeah. And <laughs> hope for the best. Uh-huh. And even if you get really good as a fermenter, 
and you're confident that, okay, I've made this batch of kimchi or this, this tofu pickle 99 times. There's no guarantee that on a hundred times it's going to go your way. Evolution happens all the time. It never stops. Yeah. That's yeah. the point. <laughs> you never know what's going to crop up. And that's a, as much a consideration at Christian Hansen in the microbiology and, and discovery departments as it is in the factories that produce bulks of these bacteria for industry. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to constantly check is like, okay, is this the same microbe oh, yeah. that we were selling to these people a year ago? Because if you just keep iterating and iterating, you, you never know. How oh, to... yeah. One random mutation can lead to a whole new strain. One new gene basically changed E. coli to Shigella, right? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, especially in this kind of industrial scale setup, you know, the fermenters used to grow these bacteria. Oof, you want to talk about environments. That is. <laughs> They've died and gone to Valhalla, these microbes, mm-hmm. you know, two story tall stainless steel tanks full of nothing but, you know, the yeast extract wow. and, and sugar and glucose and every mineral they could ever need being constantly churned and mixed up. And they're just made to grow as fast as possible. But if something changes and something starts growing faster than baseline, you might end up with a very different kind of strain on the back end yeah, than, yeah. than what you intended to grow. Here in my laboratory, in this kitchen that you can see behind me, I have two memert climate control chambers, mm-hmm. which can do everything. And that's great for fermentation. Like, I'm not a microbiologist. Across the street in the main building, there are microbiology labs with people in lab coats, you know, pipetting all day long onto various kind of agar mixtures. And there's a whole department where you can order your potato agar and your yeast extract agar and everything you need to grow everything. That's so nice. Um, That's so nice because I have to make my own plates and let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fun. It's, I, I guess that's the benefit of scale. You yeah. know? It's like when, you got, when you have like hundreds of people plating every day, it just becomes efficient to just do it all in one place. But when I'm growing microbes through food, I need to create environments that are kind of like small scale versions of what you would actually see in industry. So I have these climate control chambers. You know, I have a vacuum machine. I can remove the air from the container if I need to. I can, you know, add humidity. I can control to within a tenth of a degree. That covers most of the environmental conditions that you would ever see in food manufacturing, which is fantastic. So I can prototype on small scale and kind of, again, steer the microbes in directions using these environmental conditions to the best of my ability. That's awesome. I'm wondering a little bit about your process. So how do you decide what you want to make? Do you say like, I feel like some kimchi today. Let's make a different kimchi. This must be, you know, somewhat of a creative process. I think that my job at Noma was more of a creative process. Okay. It's not like I'm completely open-ended. It's not like I can just decide to be like, yeah, I'm going to ferment this. Let's see if there's... sure. Ultimately, they're asked to kind of be a business case for it. Like, okay, if you come up with this recipe, who is going to be interested in it? Okay. You know, there's no one way that things kind of come across my desk. I can kind of come up with projects on my own. Right now, I'm working on a way to make veggie burgers taste better through fermentation. Um, Seems like there's a demand, quite a demand for that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're they're, they're, they're not tasting great at the moment. Mm -hmm. And progress kind of seems slow going. Um, and I found that fermentation can really help to improve the flavor of kind of their base core ingredient. That's like an open-ended project that I started myself. Like, how good can I make a veggie burger? Let's let's give it a shot. And of course, my job is to use the microbes that are available to me via Christian Hansen. If I make a recipe that's so compelling that a company is like, wow, 
how do we make this? And I'm like, well, use a Christian Hansen micro to do it. Cool. That's kind of the sell. You okay. know, that's that's how I kind of justify, you know, my being here is it's coming up with innovative ways that are enticing to industry that include Christian Hansen as, as a core ingredient. Customers can come to me. Uh, last week, I had a, a seaweed farm cooperative who had trouble stabilizing a massive harvest. Huh. Uh, it, it basically failed as they were keeping it in storage and just rotted in its container, you know, over the course of weeks. And there was nothing they could do about it. So that was a lot of wasted effort and, and time and energy. And they came to me looking for solutions about how to best ferment seaweed. So that's another project I'm working on. I've worked on very simple projects like just, are there any bugs in your freezer that could help us make our kimchi or a sauerkraut or a hot sauce taste better? And I do basically what I used to do at Noma and put everything I have you know, into these things. Do I mean, it is food science. That's what food science yeah. or old recipe development is to me. It's like, all right, we're going to try 12 of this. And we're going to adjust, yeah, you know, the no, sugar content that's, and that's then see what, what ferments fastest, what tastes yeah. fastest. Yeah. That's exactly what we do in our lab too. It's Exactly. I'm doing it with a spoon and a spatula and instead of with a pipe and a petri dish. So there's, there's no like one way that I come at it, you know, and ultimately I think, sure, my job is creative. I think my job at Noma was more creative because that was kind of like ground up open-ended research where this mm-hmm. is kind of top down. You know, at Noma, I remember Renee, when I first started in the laboratory over there, this was back in like 2015, you know, he's like, you have to innovate. And and my boss at the time would tell me, he's like, you know, basically our mandate is to to make cool shit. Like that's that's what we're here to do. And whatever discoveries, whatever tickled my fancy within kind of Noma's domain would be presented to the test kitchen and it would be incorporated on the menu. So that was kind of fun. But here it's it's always kind of goal driven. What's the sell? What's the selling point? Mm-hmm. As fun as it would be to just ferment my heart out and, you know, find every old textbook on, you know, ancient Sudanese fermentation and try out every version of things that I possibly could, there's not going to be that big of a market for it other than, you know, people's just general education, which I'm always a huge fan of. But yeah, it's a different sort of creativity. But the longer I work with food and in science, the more I see science as a creative venture. I don't think anyone working in a lab isn't creative with how they approach their problems or, you know, like the creative spark that an artist has when they figure out a new technique for painting the sky behind a landscape. That's just that extra bit compelling or or like contrast colors in a perfectly particular way. That's no different from the microbiologist who finds an amazing hack to grow their germlines more efficiently or an insight into to some interaction between two different species of microbe. Um, I think the same forms of creativity underlie science and art. And I think that I'm lucky enough that food is kind of this perfect playground where both of those things sit in harmony and complement each other perfectly. That's beautiful. I totally agree. I mean, I think all science requires some creativity. I think the best discoveries come from people who can be creative, developing artistic type appreciation for a lot of the organisms we work with helps with this scientist microbe symbiosis that goes on that leads to really interesting findings in the labs. I think that's very cool. I'm going to backtrack and try to segue from veggie burger into the topic of sustainability. Mm -hmm. So very basic questions here, but what does it mean to eat in a way that's healthy for the planet and the climate? 
and what about our current food system is not sustainable? What about our current food system <laughs> is not sustainable? Let's start there. Everything. Okay. Everything. Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, just chemical inputs for, yes. period. Just chemical inputs okay. for fertilizing soil. Yes. Yes, it was part of the Green Revolution, what's sometimes called the third agricultural revolution that happened in, in yes. uh, you know, the early 1900s with the development of the, the Faber-Bosch process. Yep. Um, for sequestering atmospheric nitrogen, you know, making ammonia. Mm-hmm. Also for making bombs. Yes. Good with the bad, I guess. Yeah. Yes, that provided a huge boon to humanity and allows us to feed far more people <laughs> than the arable and tillable soils of, of that we have available to us are able to support on our own. We should not be fooled that we can keep doing this forever. <laughs> it's not like, no, it's just not the math yeah. doesn't add up. It does not add up. It's, li- it's literally not sustainable. You can't keep mining oil from the belly of the earth to blast furnaces at oh, like, yeah. 400 degrees Celsius for these industrial processes and then ship these ingredients all around the world with more oil to throw them onto fields that would otherwise be barren Oh yeah. in the hopes that these plants can somehow suck up enough of them before the rains wash them out into the rivers where they cause all sorts of other eutrophic problems. And then you harvest your crops real fast and then you basically leave a wasteland in your wake. And then also ship those foods all around the world with more oil after the fact, like sometimes three, four times yep. across an ocean to get processed and then back across an ocean to get packaged and then put into a single serving plastic package and served to you on an airplane where you take a nibble and then throw it in the garbage. It's all very complicated when it seems like it doesn't need to be. <laughs> it doesn't need to be. What about our current food system is unsustainable? All of it. Absolutely okay. all of it. We are... <sighs> I feel like we're on like a hovercraft over a sea of lava. And so long as we have gas in the tank, we won't fall in. And as, and as long as there's fossils in the earth, there will be gas in the <laughs> tank. We'll find them and we'll, we'll frack them out or whatever. Yeah, but uh, yeah. obviously, you know, you, you, it's just, it's, it's gonna, you're going to run out of fuel at some point. I, I agree. Well, it, yeah, it's crazy. Um, it's, I mean, don't even get me started on this, but it is crazy. And, you know, I work with photosynthetic organisms mostly. And like, all I think of every day at my desk is the sun is free. The sun is free. <laughs> like, what are, what are we doing? <laughs> It's not, it's we're not. doing it we're doing it wrong um yeah no we're 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 vastly outstripping the natural world's ability to support yeah. quite literally the metabolic flux yeah. that it takes to support humanity i think that's kind of a good way to look at it when you think about everything around us when you think about where all of this energy came from it all had to be transformed from the sun into some form of combustible low entropy fuel at some point and that all happened through metabolic flux and we are just like (laughs) setting fire to all of it at once without the ability to actually channel any of this in a way that's actually sustainable well and it, it, Um, it hurts me to think about some of these transformations you're talking about were on geological time scales. I mean, billion, billion, billions of years. And then in minutes, in minutes were poof, gone poof. Like 
It's, yeah. it's one thing if you were to create something on a geological time scale and then destroy it on a geological time scale. But it, of but, course. But you're creating something on one of these long time scales and destroying it, you know, so that Donald Trump can have a Big Mac. You know, it's, yeah. it's like... Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. My favorite factoid about this, mm-hmm. um, and, and don't forget, like, I'm sure we're talking about a much larger problem here about the human predicament. Yeah, yeah. But um, agriculture is one third of that, and it makes sense. Like we can talk about whatever industry. We can talk about crypto. We can talk about Nvidia graphics cards, cards yeah. just running nonstop for some mm-hmm. made-up currency. We can talk about any aspect of modern human culture. Yeah. We mustn't forget that any organism on Earth, its ground floor is food. Uh-huh. Your Wall Street bankers. Your EU politicians, your famous movie stars, you take out the ground floor of food, it all comes crumbling down. Forget your AT&T Warner Brothers merger. Forget your Microsoft. Forget your Apple. Forget all of it. If we can't grow food, humanity crumbles. And that's why it's such a, even though we don't think about it, here's a great fact. A hundred years ago, something like, well, I think it was like 26% of the U.S. population used to work in agriculture. Today, it's uh, like 1.2. That seems like an inverted pyramid if I've ever seen one. Oh, yeah. The amount of labor it takes to support a social population historically has been enormous, just from like an agricultural point of view. And if we're looking at it and be like, wait, just barely 1% of you know the world's population actually works? To feed the other ninety nine percent. Yeah, that does. That seems very <laughs> imbalanced. I mean, we're very spoiled. I'm used to yeah. saying, "Hey, DoorDash, I want some food and have a beautiful meal delivered to my door." Whereas, yeah. every other generation before us, for hundreds of thousands of years of humanity, has had to really struggle to survive mm-hmm. and to eat. Mm-hmm. At mm-hmm. some point, mm-hmm. it's, it is unsustainable, and it, and there, it's reached a a momentum where it's going to peak, and whether or not people care that it's sustainable now at some point it will like literally be unsustainable and will not sustain itself so yeah yeah there's just one other thing getting back to this kind of like yeah you know 30 percent of greenhouse gas emissions are related to human agriculture every year for the past like 23 years i think on average um every year humanity burns 100 earths worth of biomass so you count all the biomass on earth today of which there has never been more but most of it is like people and our pets yes and our domesticates yes if not our crops Mm -hmm. you know because we've just raised forests to make room for wheat all the all the bacteria all the fish in the ocean all of it ducks chickens otters muskrats your cat how dare you? All that biomass, we set a match to that a hundred times over every single year. It's crazy. So you're talking about geological timescales? My God, like the havoc we've wreaked on the earth no, it's, it's in the past hundred years is, is immeasurable. It's disgusting. Um, what was the other half of this question? I don't know. I don't remember what the question was. I think we've, I think we've answered it in more. So some of the, the work that you're doing with fermentation, I mean, I'm assuming one of the goals is to democratize more sustainable options for eating. 
So how do you see that happening? Who do you think will benefit most from expanding the use of fermentation? But after our discussion, it sounds like literally everyone will benefit from it. But how are we going to stop eating cows and shipping the meat all around the world and focus more locally on solutions to feeding people? How is that going to happen? Okay. Or what what are you doing to chip away at this problem, I guess? All right. This is is a lot. (laughs) This is a lot in a simple question. Uh, A while ago, I wrote an article for a Japanese magazine um, called The Entropy of a Carrot. And it is, I I think I was more ambitious than I was able to kind of communicate in this this piece, Mm -hmm. in my thinking at least. But I wanted to like somehow quantify, not that I'm like a biophysicist, I wanted to somehow quantify like in joules, (laughs) what is the cost of growing a carrot? Yeah. I could not calculate that. I'm sure I'd, I'd have to probably put together a team of people to be able to calculate that accurately. And even then it wouldn't be accurate because there's so many factors that go into it. Sure. But nonetheless, I did do lots of scouring and came across what are called life cycle assessments calculated by a few different universities on, you know, human agriculture of this very simple and ubiquitous crop. And the biggest, you know, take any form of input aside, whether it's organic farming or industrial farming, you name it. But the amount of kind of like harmful externalities that are brought into being by shipping a carrot across borders, I don't even know if I'm using the right kind of quantification here. It's it's like 98% less sustainable than if you were to grow a carrot a hundred kilometers from where you lived and eat it. Eating locally is the number one way to reduce the impact of human activity in agriculture. But we don't think about that. And it's it's hard to do. The food system is constructed to be blind. You know, the fact that we treat grocery store staples like commodity stocks mm-hmm. on you know the US stock exchange and sell them in futures and have these these gross, you know, multinational co-ops that pool the resources, you're completely blind. When you go to buy a box of Cheerios and you look at the back of the ingredient and you say, it says made in the United States, and you see the first ingredient is wheat, you're like, okay, great. I live in Chicago. I live in Illinois. There's wheat fields somewhere else in Illinois. You don't know that your wheat's coming from there. Your wheat, your wheat could be coming from Ukraine, for all you know. Right, right. And end up in your That's the point, Yeah. you know? Beef that's produced in Brazil, but then packed in the United States, but is fed soy that's grown in Europe. Yeah. So you can see how these kind of threads of globalism can grow and compound themselves to make agriculture utterly unsustainable, just mind-bogglingly unsustainable. The amount of energy it would take to have a farm on the outskirts of your town and grow any of this food. Take that and then just like multiply it by orders of magnitude when you plug it into the modern agricultural system. How does fermentation figure into this? Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of dark to say, but <laughs> at the level that Christian Hansen operates, it's operating within the status quo. Sure. I mean, look at it this way. On an average day, one to two billion people on earth eat something produced with a Christian Hansen microbe. That's an enormous reach. Yeah. But by default, it's not like all of those people, there's nothing, you know, there's, there's nothing inherently evil about 
the bacteria that Krishna Hansen makes. They're made in laboratories here in Denmark. You could be a producer in Denmark and buy a Christian Hansen microbe, and it could be a local ingredient in a yes. local fermented food. Yes. But two billion people a day aren't eating that way. It's just if you're plugged into the system on that scale, yeah, you're playing by the world's rules. So my work within Christian Hansen, the companies that I deal with, it's no secret that Christian Hansen's customers are, are companies like Unilever, Nestle, Coca-Cola, right? you name it, like the Danone, mm-hmm. giant food producing multinationals. But nonetheless, I get to have one-on-one time with them to be like, hey, here's how I would do what you're doing. Hey, if you're using this product, here's a crop. Like instead of using, you know, generic wheat off the global market, why don't you invest in spending R&D budget to try and make your cookie crisp with Kernza? Like use a crop that's also going to sequester carbon to the soil at the same time. Can I make, you know, a, a vegetarian alternative so convincingly good that you'll be happy to, you know, have your grocery stores ask for this instead of the meats that you were producing and selling to them, you know, last year. So I'm trying to work within the system to kind yeah. of bring that down as much as I can by using fermentation. You know, I mean, that potentially you know, has a huge impact because potentially because the yes. way our society is set up, it doesn't value local farmers fermenting things in jars. It's run by giant corporations. And I guess the first step to changing things is to get those corporations to reduce their impact. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to take multiple points of attack. You can't yeah. just be so stubborn that you think that okay well my idea of teaching everyone how to ferment and starting a farmer's market stand and then spreading that knowledge by farmer market to farmer's market is going to be the only way to save the world i think that's incredibly naive right you have to attack it from you know to drill through a mountain it's probably faster to start from both sides than just blindly chip away with a with a pickaxe at at one end yeah and i I guess that's what i also do in my own time too you know I, i work doing workshops with schools. I have a school coming to my laboratory, you know, later this week to, to inspire design students to think about the, what, what they do um, a little bit differently. I've written the Noma Guide to Fermentation. That went on to change how the entire restaurant industry views fermentation and how it's applied, you, you know, at, at neighborhood bistros. So the democratization is there as well, but, you know, it, it's a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it comes down to this. Humanity has to change. Yes. The stoichiometry of the human race right now does not add up. It's bad. Yeah, we would get an F yeah. from our RTA. I think we're we're so far to the <laughs> one end of this that it's surprising that some of the stuff going on is physically possible. It's yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. how unbalanced yeah. it is. Yeah. But you know what? At the same time, it's also turning out to not be physically possible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look at the sorts of shortages. You look at the disruptions to the global supply chain. I just yesterday, I learned that there is a Dijon mustard shortage because the fields in France can't produce Ugh. mustard seed and it'll be, it won't be solved for a year. And this is like a non-perishable resource. You know, you can just dry mustard seeds and sit on them. But climate change, frost, unpredictable weather, droughts, some of the hottest summers on record in Europe are messing things up for farmers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the things that we have been very used to having, like you said, spoiled will start to not be there so i joke about this but i am also deadly serious when i'm like when i go into a grocery store and see that there's like no limes on the shelf or something during the pandemic you are like where was the fruit and they're like oh we don't have any right now 
And I joke that like, oh, this is the running out stage of capitalism. And it is a joke, but it's not a joke. No, it's not a joke. Like, that's, it's not funny. <laughs> it's certainly not funny. Um, yeah. Let me just let me just kind of cap off this sentiment because now you got me fired up. No, no, but no. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I will just say that we, so like I said, the equation doesn't add up. Yeah. You know, both sides of that equal sign are not balanced. This has happened many times in the history of life on Earth. Nature ebbs and flows. And ultimately, humanity is a force of nature unto itself. You know, you can you can look back through microbial history. You can talk about, you know, the birth of cyanobacteria. You can talk about the, the oxygen crisis. You can talk about the great rusting. Mm-hmm. You can talk about, you know, the, the Permian extinction. You can talk about yeah. any, any number of paradigm-shifting events in the course of biological Earth history. Yep. We are unfortunately the only such event that had the foresight to see it coming. Yes, yes, it, it kills me every day. We are the only species that might have affected the countless thousands of organisms around it and knew that we were doing it and ultimately decided that mm, it's too hard no, I to know. change what yeah, we're doing. No, I, I think about this every day. There's so many things that humans are doing every day that they know (laughs) it's because very short-sighted especially like politicians well i'll be fine but you know my kids and grandkids won't but whatever i'll be dead but i think it's coming to a point where like in our lifetime there are going to be some very scary things so you know whether or not people want to ignore it i don't think people will be able to continue ignoring there are scary things happening already yes there's a war in europe just a country a couple countries away for a minute and i i can go to work and live my life comfortably and kiss my son goodnight knowing that I'm under the protection of NATO, but there are scary things happening in our world already. Oh. And I think they are happening for a long time. Uh, and I think that kind of like the myth of like the Western utopia or the American dream is exactly that. It's just a myth. Well, yeah. And the um, there's no dream happening for, you know, the, the bottom <laughs> 80% of people in, in America. People can't but, even, people can't even let me just say this. food. Yeah. You know, getting back to humanity being the only kind of extinction level event with the foresight to see it coming. We can choose to change Mm -hmm. and it will be an uncomfortable change. We can choose to forego the things that we have been used to having in the hopes of creating a better future through what is ultimately and what will feel like sacrifice. Yeah. Or nature can force our hand and make us change. And one of those two routes is better than the other. Yeah. When you were a kid standing over a bridge, you know, maybe you went to go vacation in the Ozarks, standing over a bridge, cold water, and your friends were already down swimming in the lake, and you were younger than them, and you can imagine it's like the amount of fear that you felt standing on that bridge. What's a better feeling? Building up the courage to jump yourself, knowing that you'll be okay, or surprise, your older cousin shoves you in. And you yeah. end up belly flopping <laughs> with a sore, sore red belly for the rest of your day. A very polite version of our coming future. Well, and it's funny because this is the, well, it's not really funny, but this is like the, the fifth episode of this podcast I'm recording. And this is the fifth time that this has come up. So people have this superiority complex. Like humans think that they're superior to other things on this planet. We are one species. Species go extinct every day nature doesn't favor anything 
nature is not kind. We are not special. The end. Anybody who cares about humanity wouldn't want it to be in the hands of nature to decide what happens. But I yeah, think that's, ul- it would that's be... ultimately what's going to happen. So Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you there. Uh, and I'll try and just kind of get the sentiment out succinctly. But I feel like the best aspects of the progressive human enterprise are ones that run completely counter to the tenets of evolution mm-hmm. to a degree. And you could argue that, well, aren't the best you know, aspects of human enterprise also a product of evolution? And I would say yes, but it's almost like, oh, evolution is like a motherfucker. <laughs> Sorry if you have to bleep that out. No, I, I'm not. But like, <laughs> sure, we can talk. We can. We, yeah, yeah, we can paint a rosy picture. But like you go out into the woods and nature is red and tooth claw. Yes, there are great examples of of cooperation, but like it's rare to see animals just die of old age in the wild. You're always dying of something. You're always dying of something encroaching on your well-being, whether it's predation from a larger animal that is carnivorous and higher up on you on the tropic chain or a much smaller organism that found a way in and is exploiting your juicy, warm, nutritious insides. And that to me is the funny thing, is that lots of the conservative politics that are kind of perpetuating the worst aspects of the coming calamity seem to be kind of Darwinian. Like, oh no, survival of the fittest. Protect what's yours and yours alone. Screw everybody else. But really the only way out is to kind of run counter to the biological mechanisms that got us here and say, no, 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 we have to pool our resources. We have to become like utterly eusocial. We have to think of ourselves and not just ourselves, not just yeah. each other. Not it's, it's not enough to just not be racist or to be tolerant of other peoples. We have to go further. We have to think of like the world yeah. as one people, the trees as one people, the, totally the oceans right. as one people trans specific and i mean specific as in species altruism that has not been seen since you know the the days of stewardship of indigenous tribes in in the far reaches of the world you know this i i think like a return to animism would be better for most people than this kind of sheltered off like live in your concrete box egotistical mania that we have going on for us right now well you're totally correct and humanity's become very individualistic and we also forget you know people say survival of the fittest evolution this natural selection that but you know those those forces act on populations they don't act on individuals so one person wanting to come out on top of another person could hurt the whole human population and completely screw that shit up so yeah yeah i'm with you i mean i totally agree i think this is very depressing to think about but i think you know people in your position people in my position have to think about these things all the time and the people that have power to make quick and radical change on some of these issues seem to still choose ignorance so kind of (laughs) grim well here i'll help you i'll help you paint a better picture what in my work Mm-hmm. You know, just even on my Instagram posting recipes that incorporate fermentation. Yeah. Let's say that whatever whatever we choose, whether nature decides for us what will be available for us to eat, 
20 years from now, or we actively choose like, okay, we're going to cut back on the amount of imports and transoceanic shipping that undergirds the global kind of food network. And everywhere will be forced to eat more locally by our own volition. The mark of a good chef to me is to be able to go into anyone's pantry and whip up a delicious meal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a black box cooking competition to be able to walk into like a fridge with like five things in it. When you, when you come over to your, your, your stressed girlfriend's house and she's got two kids taking care of, she hasn't gone grocery shopping. If you're an amazing chef, you can walk into her house, walk into her fridge, go through her cupboards and cook her a four star meal. And she'll be like, how does this taste so good? Education is how. Mm-hmm. Being educated on food production and literally gastronomic and, and culinary education is an amazing way, possibly the single best way to improve your quality of life under any circumstances. And fermentation is a huge part of that. To be able to ferment even the basest ingredients, whether those are the humblest ones, rice, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. chickpeas, pulses, things you can store for ages, yep. grains, and not make them boring, not just make them gruel, but make delicious umami filled flavor bombs that kind of ignite your senses in a world where what is available to us in our global pantry will have shrunk mm-hmm. fermentation is one of the key ways i see that we have available to us to grow that back out again and to entertain and keep the human spirit alive and to keep our want of diversity and our want of flavor and our, our lust for life yeah. with us while at the same time shrinking our footprint. And that's what I truly believe is lies in the power of fermentation. I mean, historically, that's what fermentation has done for people. Yeah. It's brought flavor to the table in, in times of want and need. It is It has prolonged the shelf life of ingredients that would have otherwise spoiled and not just kept them there inert, but added amazing, complex, delicious flavors. I mean, Charles de Gaulle has the best quote ever. How can you expect to rule a country with 280 different types of cheese? (laughs) But the fact that France has 280 different types of cheese is a testament to the diversity and the wonder and the power of fermentation to literally build culture, not just microbial, but human as well. Um, And in a shrinking world, when things just aren't on demand with a click or an Amazon Prime membership or a phone call, you know, we will have to return to the traditions and processes and interspecific kind of braids that have bound humanity to the living world for millennia and, and really get back to them in a very serious way. Yeah, definitely. This is a lot, that's a lot to think about. This is, this has been really, really fascinating. And despite this, this beautiful monologue or answer you just delivered, all I kept thinking of was Unfortunately, I'm one of these people with five things in their fridge. And, (laughs) you know, next time you're in New York or New Jersey, please, please do something with all my shit ingredients. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think that's a really, that's a really good thought to kind of wrap things up on. And I really appreciate all of your insight. And I do, I did have some quick, fun little questions for the end. Let's do them. I feel Let's do them. Let's stupid do them. asking. Rapid them. fire. Okay. So number one, these are so stupid compared to this bigger picture. But number one was what, <laughs> what's your favorite fermented food that you've made or created? My favorite fermented food that I've made or created? Yeah. Easy. It was like a spider. Okay. Made of. I love cider. Barley. It tasted Ooh. like, it tasted like 
a fizzy tropical alcoholic spritzer. It was Ooh. incredible. And it was kind of like a, a light barley wine uh, that had a kind of rare fungus from Japan grown on it huh. called Aspergillus luchuensis. Ooh. And what's really cool is that this fungus produces citric acid in quantity. Wow. You know, it's like we all have the citric acid cycle inside of us. This one just happens to spit out lots of citric acid. Cool. And when this fungus grows on grains, it tastes like a mix of oyster mushrooms and grapefruit and green apples. And I fermented that into like a carbonated, like, huh. and oh my God, one of the most mind-bendingly delicious ferments I've ever made. That sounds so good. I was also going to ask, do you have like a go-to or a favorite microbe to try first on things? I, I do hear it, Christian Hansen. It's a Lactobacillus plantarum. Okay. Um, but it is a strain that was isolated from, I believe, Chardonnay wine. Okay. And it is extremely fruity. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of cool because I, I once uh, got to hang out with some of the people from Ginkgo Bioworks out in Boston. And they told me that they, like, isolated a strain of yeast that had horizontally transferred some of the metabolic profiles of like root trees that they like harvested it from and it like like so like some of the aroma compounds that you would find in the fruit were being produced in the yeast and like they looked at the sequences and were like the yeast stole this from the tree so like across kingdoms of like yeah horizontal gene transfer between like related bacteria no 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 this is do you know this is what my whole dissertation is on so i'm gonna have to go look this up i'm gonna have to go look this up after this Um, but it was super cool. And, and, you know, I, like I said, I'm no, I'm no microbiologist. I'm not sitting around a gene sequencer ever. I can, you know, read the T's and G's and C's and A's for my life, but at least on kind of like a hands-on level, I can taste it. It's very cool to see the power of bacteria to reproduce other characteristics in the natural world. Um, so there's a plantarum strain I hear I use that manages to, in very bland ingredients, produce amazingly fruity and delicious flavors. Cool. One last question, possibly most important question. On the third episode of Top Chef Canada Season 10, the (laughs) the Restaurant Wars episode, all of the other judges at the table had white wine with their dinner. You were drinking a glass of red. Please explain. Uh, It was like... (laughs) Okay, this is going to be a hot take. Really? If I have the option to drink bad red wine and bad white wine, I will always take a bad red. I I 150% agree. You know what I mean? I do not. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I do not really like white wine. I'm not a fan. I I think there's amazing white wines out there. There, I've tasted white wines that will blow your socks off, even as a not white wine fan. But... You know exactly what I talk about when I, I say if I you do. have I do if you have an equally bad yeah 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 like both one out of ten bottles of red and white wine yeah go for the red okay. you will be much better off. So my takeaway is that Top Chef gives you shitty wine, but <laughs> I did not. You cannot get me on record saying that. Okay. But I will just let that hang. Okay. Okay. Give you a pregnant pause well david (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for teaching us so much about fermentation and sustainability and how we're all doomed 
where can our listeners follow you? And is there anything that you wish to plug today? <laughs> um, you can follow me on Instagram at David underscore Zilber. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my feed is a fun mix of books I'm reading and recipes, I love and it. insights yeah. into fermentation and research and all sorts of shit I come across. I have nothing to plug. Okay. But I will just leave you with this. Okay. Um, I will plug, I will plug hope. Because okay. I don't think we're doomed. Okay. I think. Cool. Thank you. I think, call me a, a dissatisfied optimist. Okay. No, things aren't good right now. But if we learn anything from evolution, is that even after the darkest of times, after extinction level events, life always has the ability to bounce back and flourish and become creative in radiate in ways that the earth has never seen before. And like I said, you know, we have the foresight to mm-hmm. change what we're doing. You know, we have everything, everything within us to solve the problems we've created is already there. So it's just about finding the hope and the will to act on it and, and use the tools that are available to us to make for a better future. And I think that that's ultimately what life is about. I think it's about making a better future for the people that come after us. And so, yeah, I'm hopeful. I don't think we're doing it might not be easy, but I don't think we're doing it. That's nice. And I try to share those thoughts and I, I really hope that that's correct. I, I think that's, that's a really nice sentiment. So, and that's a, that's a wrap, I think. That's a wrap. That was really great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I really do appreciate you coming on. I know that you're busy and, you know, t- tens of people might listen to this. I know David didn't want to plug anything, but I want to plug the Noma Guide to Fermentation. I keep my copy in my refrigerator, and it's a beautifully written, illustrated, and photographed book with lots of interesting ways to try out fermentation. I also want to confess that I did not actually butter my toast this morning, and I lied to our guests today. So just throw me in the trash. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and transition and outro music is by El Felipe Beniches. For other information on microbes or the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Lastly, I want to give a special thanks to Willie and Andrew Freeman for helping me understand more about food before I did this interview. Have a great day, everyone.